Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Anna Sale, author of Let's Talk About Hard Things. Anna is the creator and host of Death, Sex, and Money, the award-winning podcast from WNYC Studios. Before that, she covered politics for public radio for many years. Anna, welcome to That Said. Thank you for having me. So this book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, was a great read. I really, Mm. I loved it. Um, Thank you. and, And before we ask the question of why did you write this book, let's us learn a little bit about you. Who are you? Who am I? Well, I am uh, a 40-year-old journalist. I have two kids who are little. Um, and I've been making a show called Death, Sex, and Money for seven years now. That is uh, an interview show um, that we say we talk about the things you think about a lot and need to talk about more. Um, and I, I came to that work actually after covering politics um, for nearly a decade Um, And I think about that transition a lot. I'm like, oh, that's sort of interesting. Like, why did I go from the very public sphere as a journalist to the most private? Um, And I think that, uh, I think it's basically, I'm doing the same thing that I did as a political reporter now, because as a political reporter, I felt like my job was to like, tell people what was really going on, despite what the politicians were saying, (laughs) you know, to say like, no, this is really happening. Let's not pretend. Um, And I feel like now I'm doing that, but with a lens on our personal lives, like, let's not pretend that this stuff that's really consequential and hard to get through sometimes on your own. Let's not pretend it's not happening. Let's open up that conversation and see if we might help each other by acknowledging it. Yeah. You know, it's funny, when I read the book, I thought, well, if I was a librarian, would I put this in the self-help category or psychology category or um, just general nonfiction. Did you have, when you, when you, when you decided to write the book, did you have a a sense of where, where in the Dewey Decibel system you'd you'd place it? No, I didn't. Actually, my, my editor that I worked with at Simon and Schuster, the first thing he said to me was like, you know, I like to make weird books. And I was like, great, because this is a weird one. You know, because I felt like it's both, it has elements of self-help. It's like saying, you know, hopefully this book is going to be useful to you as you live your life. Um, but I also wanted it to have a sort of um, kind of a sweeping social commentary look as well. Um, and then there's also aspects of it that are memoir, um, which are my parts of just wanting to model, like, I don't know all the answers here, people, but here's what I've run into. Here's what it was a really hard moment of trying to figure out how to talk about this hard thing. And here's one thing I learned um, by something I've gone through. So it's a mix of all of those genres, I think. So we're just going to, the library's going to buy multiple copies and place it exactly. all over, all over the place. <laughs> It was strategic. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you, you write in the book, When we share and listen to each other about our deepest hardships and needs, we start to see one another more clearly, and the connections between us are reinforced. There is a lot in life that is difficult, and there's no getting around that. Good conversation will not take away from the shocks of life, but isolation and stigma stigma inevitably make that pain 
much worse. The willingness to talk is the salve that any of us can offer. I thought that was just brilliant. Um, mm. And I think it was a great way to start. So why don't we start with, because that's sort of like an overarching mm-hmm. theory or thesis uh, upon which the book is then built. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I just think uh, when you read that, I, I it's sort of interesting, like a f- I get flashes of people in my life, you know, like each of us going through, we've had those people who somehow signaled, I'm a person who you can talk to, you know, and like what, how special that is. You know, there's one of the opening quotes at the beginning of the book is a quote from my dear friend, Ann Simpson, who's now 89 years old. And she likes to say, openness creates openness. And I love that because it's not saying like vulnerability is good. It's like, it's like, no, no, no. Openness. If you just can figure out how to be open, there'll be more openness. And that's, that's healthy. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no question. But to get to openness requires the starting of a hard conversation, which is the, the, the point of, of the book. And I have in, in the notes that I wanted to talk to you about it, I asked, you know, why start a conversation? How do you start a conversation? Who participates in the conversation? Um, so can you talk about this, these uh, who, what, why's of, yeah. of, of where, where of do you that, start? Yeah. Where you I mean, start and why, you, and, and in some sense, as you talked about it, this was uh, helpful to you in understanding yourself, but the, the why you start it is also really important to figure out. Why are you, mm-hmm. what are you, why are you going to, why are you going to undertake this? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the why you start, it begins with like that feeling that each of us has run into that feeling of like, uh, like I'm noticing something that I feel either I, I, I wish I could bring up with that person. It's a conflict or, oh, I'm noticing I'm, I'm feeling really heavy about this particular stress or these sets of questions I have about what I'm supposed to do. Um, and then, and in this book, I hope is a little bit of a permission to say like, it's okay to try to figure out the person to talk to about that stuff. Um, and, and when you do it with someone in your personal life, like it can feel scary because you're, um, you know, you're indicating that there's something you haven't figured out. There's something that's, um, you know, uncertain or a little bit messy. Um, but, but when you sort of signal and, and, it, and it can be hard to know what relationship can handle that, you know, like sometimes you tr- might try to talk to somebody who like really can't, isn't comfortable talking about death. Maybe it brings up something that's too painful that they don't want to like encounter with you. They don't want to talk about with you. But, but what I think about when I think about how to start a conversation, it's like to think, am I, am I beginning this hard conversation because there's something I need to speak up about? There's something I'm noticing that I feel like this person needs to know about me. Or is it like, I'm talking to this person because there's something that's happening either that they're doing or that's going on in my life that I'm trying to understand. And I want to sort of talk with them about it. Um, so either one of those are, 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 are reasons why you might come to a hard conversation. And then when you start, it's, it's really important. I think the most important thing for a successful conversation about something tender is to kind of just signal that 
I want to, can I talk to you about something important? Like that, a line as simple as that to say, like, I, you know, it makes the person realize like, oh, they're trying to get me to move into a different mode of talking. Like I'm going to slow down and I'm going to listen. Um, and once you sort of sort of say, this is, I, I've been thinking about this and I'd like to talk to you about this. And then you just open it up and then kind of figure out how to listen to one another and be curious about what their response is rather than, you know, trying to be reactive, like really trying to listen and exchange. Um, it can be successful. Like, but I think that that the, the way you initiate you think about like, what is it that I want from this conversation? And then how do I signal to this person? I want to, I want to talk to you about this. And then you can also be open. Maybe they'll say like, I'm sorry, it's really not a good time. I'm on my way to the store. The baby's crying, et cetera, et cetera. Like you want to make sure you're protecting the space when you're trying to go in on something that's a little bit tougher to talk about. Yeah. And, and you, you said the word twice and I'll raise it now, which is that you said in a conversation, of course, there are at least two parties um, to the conversation, and they each have a role, a speaking role and a listening role. And, and, and you emphasize in the book that in some sense, the listening role is as hard, if not harder than the, the speaking role, being able to you just use the words slow down. Um, and, and that's that's not easily done, especially about the topics that we're going to talk about, death, sex, <laughs> family, money. But so you've given us a, a, a hint of think of a way to open the conversation. But how in the course of the multiple years that you've been having conversations about this, have you found an ability to slow down and and listen? Because when you're talking about these tough things sometimes the thought is jump in and sort of filibuster in a way yeah or jump in and try to fix it I think that's a real impulse that a lot of us have because that's the way you know a lot of us show care like we want to give advice we want to say we want to give perspective to say like I know this is tough now but in three years you're going to feel real you know you'll feel differently about this um and I think that those those are totally understandable, loving instincts, but they get in the way of a conversation because you're not, um, I think that the mode of listening that I have found um, to be more useful in a hard conversation is that really um, trying to make sure what you're hearing, like really trying to have the objective of like, am I understanding what they're saying to me? And, and, And I will do things in interviews like, Oh, so you were, you were 30 years old when that happened to you. Like, where were you living? Were you, were you, were you living on your own? Did you live near your family? Like, just, I, I will ask very concrete questions to try to understand and be able to see and inhabit what they're telling me about. Um, and, and what's so interesting is like, when you're the person talking and somebody is coming back at you with these very sort of, uh, these these questions that are informed by what you're telling them, it is a very rare experience to be listened to in that way. And I find that that when someone can feel that from me as an interviewer, then they start re- they'll open up even more. Instead of saying the like, you know, moral of the story that they've learned how to tell at the dinner party, then they'll like go back and be like, actually, 
oh, it, there were a period of years when I didn't know what I was supposed to, you know, you just find more nuance to the story. Um, and, and so I think it's about focusing on what is my objective in this conversation? If my objective is to, to understand what they're telling me, and even if I'm disagreeing, like I, I, I'm not for just, I'm not saying that you should just nod along and say, oh, I affirm everything you're telling me. Like, I think, I think, but but instead of immediately going to the reactive place of like, oh, I don't agree with that, bah, 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 like all the reasons why and making it a debate to try to really kind of have that exchange of information open. Because as soon as it becomes a debate, then you're kind of clashing against each other instead of sharing. Yeah, you're right, you're right that the, the point of a hard conversation is to be able to see more clearly. Mm-hmm. And you need to recognize that resolution without resolution can be liberating. And, yeah. and, and, and maybe you could speak to that because I thought I, I liked that a lot. Yeah. I think that's so uncomfortable. <laughs> like it can, I, like this is part of the memoir part of the book. Like the, one of the main things I write about um, is the end of my first marriage. And I was 30 years old when that marriage was falling apart and I, we were having trouble and, and, and I didn't, we were having a lot of conflict and I didn't understand why. And I really, I was like, let me read the books. We're going to go to the couples counseling. We're going to just dig in and we're going to fix this. And I think what took me uh, a long time to appreciate was I felt like we weren't good at talking about hard things because the marriage ultimately ended. And now writing 10 years on and looking back at the end of that marriage, I sort of saw for the first time, like, oh, no, no we were doing exactly what we needed to be doing and having those conversations is what allowed us to admit to each other that we wanted really different things in our early thirties. I wanted, I wanted a house. I wanted to have kids. I wanted a family and he didn't, he wanted something really different. And the conversations were sad and they felt um, unsatisfying in the moment because it wasn't, we weren't able to tie it all up and make it better by having the conversation, but actually the conversation did its job. It revealed to us that we needed to split up. Yeah. And and I, I I was struck when you um, met him some number of years later and, and had a conversation again, part of the reunion was not satisfactory, but part of it, I think revealed to you that having at least made a good run at age 30 at these hard conversations allowed, it seemed to me, the, the marriage to dissolve amicably um, yeah. and that you each recognized that you had desires for stability and he wanted to be a filmmaker, which yeah. is absent all stability. <laughs> yeah, depending on, yeah, if, if you don't have a lot of generational wealth, it can be hard. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah. And I feel like I interviewed him for the book. I was like, I'm working on this book. Can we talk about this? I want to make sure that if I'm telling people to have hard conversations that I'm actually doing it. Um, and just revisiting it all with him, it made me feel a lot of compassion for us. Like we did our very best, you know, and we were, we went through a really hard thing together and it's not something we expected when we got together and when we fell in love and when we were learning how to be adults together in our twenties, Um, but we did our very best and, uh, 
and and he's doing exactly what he wanted to do and I'm doing what I wanted to do. So I, I feel a lot of peace with that. Yeah. Now. You're just doing it separately. Exactly. And, Not together. Right. But, but the thing that I found to talk about you for a minute that was um, so interesting and when we get the money, we'll see how this plays out a little bit was you both were beginning your professional and personal lives when he gets this, opportunity for a lifetime to go to NYU uh, film school. And it requires you guys to uproot, move across country with no security whatsoever, which was... During the financial crisis. During the financial crisis. <laughs> which is, you know, in, in, in the best of times, a, a difficult thing. And yet you figured out a way to talk through the differences that led you to ultimately lead to, and I think there's a lesson there um, about relationships. We'll talk about family, but I think that the way you did that was really quite mature of you. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, it wasn't always mature. Like, I think that's something I talk about in the money chapter, because, because it took us a long time to be like, oh, we want different things. We weren't saying that big thing, but instead we were bickering about all the small choices about what we were going to do with our money. So that's where the conflict and the hard conversation, they focused on the micro instead of kind of broadening out to the, took us a long time to realize like, oh, that's the hard conversation we need to be having. Um, You know, I I feel like in any end of a marriage, uh, hopefully you end up in a mature place, but there's going to be some immature moments (laughs) while you figure it out. (laughs) I'll do this. Ogden Nash said, you can be young only once, but you can remain immature indefinitely. Mm -hmm. I've been living my life according to that. So I'm not sure how much progress I'm going to make, notwithstanding the the self-help part of the book. So can we turn to um, death? Uh, Because that's, to me, that was um, a profound... um, chapter uh, uh, and it's a funny thing i i, I made note of the, the jerry seinfeld line he, he he says um according to most studies people's number one fear is public speaking number two is death death is number two he says does that sound right that means that the average person if you go to a funeral is better off in the casket than doing the eulogy <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I wonder, hmm, I, I would like to see the methodology for that particular survey. Um, but I, <laughs> I, I feel like, I, you know, maybe people just don't mention death as their number one fear because it's so sort of ambient, but not spoken that they don't even remember to mention it. Um, maybe they're afraid to mention it. Yeah. Which is what I find. Um, it's been my own ex- experience around death. I mean, and I, I, the thing that one of the things I wanted to explore in the death chapter was um, I've had the experience in my life. I, I grew up uh, in a kind of, you know, suburban small community in West Virginia. My mom grew up in a farming community in North Carolina. So both when I was growing up in West Virginia and um, with what my mom learned around death, uh, there were just these really built in customs for what to do when someone died. You, make 
you know, you get out your casserole dish and you make dinner and you take it to their house, you show up at the service, you, um, there's all these sort of ways in which you can acknowledge the loss, express care for the people who are grieving. Um, but it didn't necessarily take a lot of words, you know, and I have since left West Virginia and now I, I've lived in New York city in my adult life. I now live in the Bay area. I love a lot of people who don't live near me. I find out about death most often these days via social media where you have to like figure out the six words you're going to say in a comment um, to, you know, begin acknowledging it. So I, I really feel like even though death has obviously been around for as long as human beings have been around, um, right now, based on how our communities look and how our society looks, we all have to have had to sort of acquire more skills with how to talk about it, um, especially during the pandemic, you know, like we're, we can't even gather in, in, in a funeral and in, like, we have to figure out how to make that call and what to say or what to write in the note. Um, and so one of the key messages that I, I wanted to sort of focus on um, in the death chapter is, is again, that idea of not trying to solve it for someone, um, not try to say it's for the best. They're not, they're not in pain now, you know, that you, or, or let me do if, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. Um, and instead to make, to try out being that friend who can sit with them in the hard hardness of grief, um, I'm so sorry. I'm so, I'm so sorry that this happened. It's, I'm very sad. I, I, I will miss him. He meant a lot to me, like share a story and then maybe call back again in two weeks or a month and say, I was just thinking about you. How are you doing? And to try out being that friend who can be with them in all the feelings um, and not, and, and not try to sort of keep them be the one who needs to kind of shut it down to say, you know, find the silver lining. Well, in starting the book, I thought not after too long that I was just going to not read this book because it was making me crazy. Um, and part of the reason it was making me crazy, and I'd like you to talk about it because it's about this in death, in the death chapter, you're talking about sort of three categories of conversation in, in, in certain measure, talking to the dying person, um, talking to the relative who's watching a loved one die, especially an Alzheimer's-like or pancreatic cancer-like. And then, and where I'd like to ask you is, is Megan, um, mm. the person who experiences the unexpected, shocking death. That's what I said to myself. I'm going to call Anna Sale and tell her, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't, I just can't read this book because it's my, you know, it's my greatest fear. Fear, yeah. Um, but can you talk a little bit about her story and then what did it, what did she teach us about mm -hmm. people talking to her about her loss? Yeah. I mean, she had one of those losses she just didn't see coming. Her, her, her partner, they were hiking one day. He got swept into a river. He was 39 years old and he drowned. Um, In and, front of her. Yes. Yes. And uh, she tried to save him like terrible, terrible tragedy. And 
she's a grief counselor. She's a therapist. And um, the one thing she talked to me about was like how she was sort of stunned. She calls it some of stunningly wrong. Some of the things that people would say to her. Um, and, and, and she said basically that she could see what was happening, which was in the face of death, we all feel helpless and people wanted to say the thing that would make them feel like they were being helpful to her. So they didn't feel helpless. Um, but that had the consequence for her of making her feel alone in the shattering grief. Um, and, and she described this, this encounter that, that was really meaningful to her that she, she was in, uh, she was, she was getting coffee one day in town, not long after her partner had died. And this owner of a local bookstore sort of walked up to her. It's not someone she knows well. And he just said to her, like, you know, I didn't know him well, but I was always impressed with him. And then he paused and he said, it's going to take you a lot longer to feel normal than anyone will tell you. And then he sort of like, you know, nodded and walked away. And she found that to be exactly what she needed in that moment, which was she didn't need to demonstrate that she was okay to make the person she was talking to feel okay, which is the strange thing that can happen in grief where if someone, you know, does something nice for you, you want to show that you're doing okay so that they know that they're being helpful. Um, and instead she just got to, you know, have a moment of like, yeah, everything I have known and thought my life was is shattered. And I am just trying to put one foot in front of the other. And that's where I am right now. And he saw that in that short exchange. Yeah. We learn, um, that really in, in, in life, um, 90% as it relates to death and, and happiness, perhaps too, um, is, is showing up, uh, the mm-hmm. best, my rabbi, um, Avis Miller in a, in a book called on wings of hope in a 1996, um, sermon, um, called showing up. She says the best we can do for each other is to just show up and give the gift of our presence. And mm-hmm. she, she quotes Genesis twenty two twenty one, which is the binding of Isaac. Abraham has been commanded by God to bring Isaac to the altar to be sacrificed. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, you know, sort of like, and um, Abraham says, Hineni, God, here I am. So as you command, here I am. And she writes from that, that's what, that's what a hard conversation about death, and that's what our responsibility as caring human beings is, is to answer, here I am. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I want to say, like, that is hard. You know, if someone you know is dying to, you know, that it is not easy to always be present and to witness that and to take it in. Um, But that's, that's, that is the work. It's, can you step towards that and say, this is going to be painful and hard. And I, here I am. Yeah. And, 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 
you write in the book that a lot of people wonder in not showing up, I suppose, in some sense of what will they say, you know, how, how, how will they initiate? Now, the, the bookstore owner in your cafe scene says to her that which nobody else had previously said to her, which is it sucks and it's going to be that way for a long, long time, maybe forever. Um, and I'm really, really sorry. Um, whereas others were trying to get her to think about um, un- looking for a new partner. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll, yeah. be, it'll be fine. Don't worry. Time, time heals everything, which is, you know, I think in some sense, one of the great lies mm-hmm. of, of life. Cause mm-hmm. it may, as to your words, sand down some of the edges, mm-hmm. but uh, does it cure everything? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. But um, it's interesting in this notion of uh, what do you say when going to a house of mourning in Judaism, um, we're taught that it's customary not to say anything until the mourner speaks first. Mm-hmm. Um, Jewish tradition um, says that we're to be quiet until the mourner speaks so we can gauge the mourner's state of mind and to provide a hint of how we should respond. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you talk a lot about that in a sense. It's part of your listening. You show up as best you can in a pandemic, but you still show up and, and you provide your presence and you sort of initiate your active listening skills um, to allow the mourner the opportunity to engage. Yeah, I really love that. I mean, talk about ancient wisdom, you know, because because something that is really important around death uh, is is dignity. And I'm not advocating for sort of forcing a hard conversation that the person you are talking to, like, isn't ready to have or, or doesn't want to talk in those terms. I think I think it's so much more about signaling whether it's with just being there or with words that you can be the person that can, can listen to what, you know, if they have something that, that needs to be heard, it's, it's that very human, just I'm, I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Rabbi Harold, Harold Kushner in when um, bad things happen to good people say essentially, and what Jesus said essentially is that, our job on earth is to, you know, um, be God's voice, speak um, for for God. Um, uh, and that's to show up in good and bad times and, and be a, a presence. Mm-hmm. So that was fun. Let's, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, let's um, lighten it up some and talk about hard conversations with family. Okay. That's, All right. <laughs> that's a that's a a bundle of, of of joy. And and it's funny the other the other day on the television, um, the God Godfather Two was on the nineteen seventy four um, Academy Award winning film. And if you remember it, Michael Corleone is now the head of the family. Marlon Brando dies in in um, Godfather One. He's got this brother. Fredo, who is a bit of a, a, a liability, 
um, and the threat to the way Michael sees how the family should be run. And uh, Michael goes to his mother and he says, um, mom, by being strong for your family, protecting your overall family, can you lose it? And his mom answers by saying, you can never lose your family. Michael pauses, he said, times are changing. And then, of course, at the end of Godfather 2, spoiler alert, he has Fredo killed. Spoiler. <laughs> Bad luck for Fredo. He thought he was going Times fishing. Times were definitely changing, yes. But, 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 but there's a message. There was a message in that um, uh, for me that hard conversations w- with families are, are hard. And, and you write that hard conversations have two critical purposes that can feel at odds. We at once want to understand our origins and connections to our family members, but we also want to declare how we are different from them and for our individuality to be understood, respected, and appreciated. And, and, and I think that sort of sums up a lot of relationships within families, and, and you have wonderful stories about it, and maybe you could talk to that a bit. Yeah, I mean, as I was working on this chapter, I was like, huh, like that idea that both that what feels has felt really hard for me in moments with family conversations is um, when there's anything that feels separate or I feel misunderstood or something someone is doing is unfamiliar to me. It's so easy to go to the place of like, that's not what we do in our family. You know, like you have this, um, it's a culture you grow up in. There's dynamics, there's things that are, this is how we do things. And when someone steps out of it, you know, you can, you can feel, um, you know, it threatens that idea of collective identity. And, and then I was thinking about, well, gosh, like, you know, I'm a, I'm, I have a, I'm a parent of two little kids. I'm watching what happens as a child is born and is like as dependent on me as they will ever be when they're an infant. And the rest, I had a friend tell me that the, the experience of parenting is continually figuring out how to let go. Um, and she told me this when I had an infant, like in my, that I was like still nursing, feeding, you know, and that idea of like, oh, that is like, feels tragic to me. But I, 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 so I wanted to really home in on that idea that family is, you have this tension of both wanting to be close and expecting to feel close and understood. And also that feeling, having separation and growing apart in a way is what happens as you age, as you become an adult. Um, And if that, if you sort of start a hard conversation about family, like just seeing like, oh, this is part of what family, this is what happens in families. I don't have to solve this with this hard conversation, but I can sort of get to know it. And then it's, then there are sets of choices about how you want to approach the hard conversation within family. Because um, the comedian Hassan Minhaj in an interview on Death, Sex and Money, he told me a line that his father told him, which I just love. Um, In dealing with conflict, you've got to decide um, if you want, want to be right or if you want to be together. And I think that that's something that when you think about in the context of family, 
certainly there are moments when you just decide, I'm not going to pick this battle. I'm going to keep the peace. I want to be together with the family. And then there's other moments and other issues where you think like, this is going to upset everything. This is going to upset the status quo, but like, this is what's my truth. And I got to say it. And everyone's just going to have to figure out how to digest it. Um, but that does threaten the together. Um, so I think that that's, I liked thinking about that question um, when you're going into a family conversation, like, do I want to be right or do I want to be together? Because in some ways I have to decide which is more of the priority in the conversation. Yeah, exactly. You, you write, um, inside our families, our roles get cast early on. And with those roles come a set of unspoken rules of how we are viewed within the family, how we will treat one another, who is allowed to say what. And in family relations, sometimes you have to let long-held conflicts deep with real disagreements go in order to retain the the, the structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, I think that's, that's right. I mean, I think that you, you nailed it. Mm-hmm. Thanks. I mean, it's, you know, I'm, I'm a middle child and of five daughters. So I've had a lot of experience thinking about this. <laughs> yeah. So, but one, one thing that you said, and then again, in the interest of time, we'll go through, uh, and you know, maybe to the listening audience, we may not cover, um, <laughs> Sex and money, we'll see. But, we'll see. But but it is the re- another reason to buy the book if we don't get to those two two chapters. But but one thing I want to talk about with you about family is you say that picking the time to have a conversation about family is really important. It's true about all of these things, but I think family. Because our roles are cast, and there, there's the there's the struct there's a structural relationship in addition to an individual relationship. Um, you're right. When it comes to hard family conversations, an enormous amount hinges on timing. We have to be attentive to the slow shift in our long-term relationships, and willing to call them into conversation when gaps begin to yawn. Mm. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I feel like, yes, it's so important to think about timing in, in terms of the, the, where the, the evolution of your relationship with a family member and also, you know, don't do it at the Thanksgiving table, you know, when everyone's there to, to watch, like try to do it, you know, maybe the morning after on a walk with the family member when you have some time one-on-one. Um, so there's things like that to think about. But on the other hand, something else someone tells me in, in, in that chapter, a filmmaker, Desiree Akhavan, who came out to her parents and it was really challenging for them. You know, she said, there's never a good time, you know, on, at the same time, like you can wait for the, for the best of available times, but also if what you have to talk about is going to um, sort of, uh, explode a lot of the dynamics in the family there there's really not ever going to be the time where that's going to be easy um so it's just trying to find 
the best of the available times. And for Desiree, in her case, she got to a point where she thought, I, my choice here is to keep this a secret from my family and to lie or to figure out how to go home for the weekend and tell them, you know, on a Sunday night before I go back to my apartment. And that's what she chose to do. She, for her, having that secret from her family was, uh, was more painful to think about than um, what might happen as they heard what she told them. Yeah. You, you, you write that people, relationships have to evolve out of old ruts and in groups and Mm -hmm. her old rut and groove was silence and it was time for there to be no silence you write that um it creates more space for love Mm -hmm. not immediately always no (laughs) maybe not ever Might might not ever but you know if you do like the thing that was so interesting in her family is once she said I am a gay woman and this is going to just, you know, and they were disappointed by it and didn't understand it and, and had trouble with it. Um, But as they found their way and her father told her at one point, I had to decide if I wanted, if I wanted to be close to you, I had to figure out how to make this okay, because this is who you are. Um, That he, he got to that place. And now her brother is an adult. Her parents have since split up. They're all, sort of living their lives in much different ways. But, but she sort of says like, that was the, that was kind of the first moment when everything kind of um, opened up. Uh, And, and now it's a a really different family, Um, but they are all very close and they love each other as adults, which I think is hard to, can be hard to do when, when children age um, and get older and leave the house and have their own lives to figure out how to, see each other and love each other as adults. Yeah. Uh, Bonnie Raitt has that wonderful song, Nick of Time. She says, I see my folks are getting on. I watch their bodies change. I know they see the same in me and it makes us both feel strange. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, sort of growing out of the patterns um, of our childhood to live as a family of adults requires hard conversations and confrontation about the historic roles that that people have played and a willingness to let that role go away uh, yeah. to, uh, when, I, when my son i think it was my son started college the the, the school gave us a book called letting go um <laughs> i said to myself you're out of your mind <laughs> and I'm not, i don't believe i've ever read the book and if you ask both of my kids they'll say and that's the problem dad is that you refuse to let go um, I think they've been trying to have a hard conversation with me about it for a very long time. And I keep saying, how about those Yankees? <laughs> well, you know, I think that, I think that we talk a lot about the, the, the difficulty that parents can have as their kids go out into the world, because you do feel that, oh, that's just like that, that pull towards these people who are your children doesn't go away. And, but I also wanted to write about, you know, as when I think about the kind of relationship I want to have with my parents who, as they get older to, to remember like, Oh, I, I need to be curious about them as well. You know, I need to ask to hear even family stories again, that maybe stories I've heard a zillion times, 
but how my mom might tell it to a 40 year old woman who has kids of her own is going to be different than when I heard it for the first times when I was a child or a teenager. And, and I think just encouraging that kind of intergenerational curiosity, like, how's this for you? How's this for you? Like you can uncover some, some pretty interesting things. Yeah. And and I think that that is, is absolutely true. And I think it's, interesting and perhaps even more difficult among or between siblings mm-hmm. because I mean you as you write you're one of five and 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 you had older and younger and and um, siblings and and you were you know expected to behave as you were in that in that middle role but 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 siblings have to learn how to each be adults with one another and not be the older brother or the middle sister or, you know, the 12th, the the 12th child, you know? Yeah. It's, that's really hard. For me, for me, your writings about that were, were were profound and and, and interesting. Mm. And maybe we talk a little bit about that and then we'll move on to your hardest topic, which is money. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think siblings, Oh, it's just, it's a different thing too, because you have these like power dynamics, you know, between older and younger and, and, you know, one is the giver of wisdom and the other is supposed to be the receiver of wisdom. And as you move out of those um, roles and maybe your lives look different, maybe you make different choices that then like there, there's a lot that can feel kind of like, not just like, oh, this is upsetting the order of things, but also a little bit like, um, personally threatening like why is she making that choice when I would make a really different choice like obviously she's doing the wrong thing (laughs) so I I I, you know the the best advice I have for those kinds of things is like you can't just talk your way out of those dynamics and those histories that you have with with your siblings it's instead you know I try to be self-aware that like oh I'm a middle child who has a hard time being told what to do by my older siblings. So when I get sort of like indignant and acting like a teenager, it's because I'm being my middle child self. And if I can just say that, then we can talk about, you know, then we can talk about other things instead of just digging in and acting out that particular dynamic all over again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's again, it's, it's learning to be independent adults who have this structural family relationship, but now have to forge a new independent adult relationship shackled without the shackles of the the roles in which you were initially cast yeah. really hard yeah really hard a process. so i picked <laughs> these two chapters i don't think this was the order of the book i picked these two chapters because they were sort of like the hardest uh mm. for me you um when asked what was the hardest conversation for you it was money Money was, um, you said, was the, the the toughest thing, and and you write um, for you, and, and I disagree a little bit for the first time in reading the book. The first time I read, like, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, yeah, you write, money is like oxygen. When you are short of it, nothing else matters. It warps how we see our present and our future either hope or dread. When it comes down to it, money often determines our very self, our very worth in our deepest sense of the word. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it determines our very worth. Now, 
I agree with you that when you don't have money, it's like oxygen. It, it's all it's all consuming. There's nothing. The, the the biggest pandemic in America, which the COVID pandemic revealed, is poverty. There's no question, but that's the most overarching pandemic that that we face. And so I completely agree with you. But I'm not so sure that I accept that money is the determiner of our worth. And I'm not sure that accepting that point of view is 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 healthy. But but but, but oh, you yeah. so tell me tell me tell me I, about- I agree with you. I think I, I don't I don't have that point of view that um how much money you have is indicative of your worth. Um, more, and maybe that's just a poor, poor way of wording it more. I was trying to say, um, it can feel like that. It can feel like the, when you are having trouble surviving, um, the idea of, of, uh, feeling like you're enough, um, can, can be hard to come by, um, because you don't have enough. Um, but but I think that that's just one piece of money. Like, I think the, the, the reason it's money is so tricky for me, I think, is because I am like a, um, I'm like a, a student. I like to do my, my, I like to like do my homework. And the thing that is, has been kind of personally um, tricky for me about money is like, I, I think I was trained the way you deal with money is you think about how much is coming in. You think about what you should do with what you have, what you save, what you, you know, what you spend. It's these series of personal finance tactics. And if you do this thing that we all tell you to do to how to be responsible with money, then you're good. You know, that's, that's what you ought to be doing. And, and I think I didn't have a language for like, why, why am I so, what's happening when I feel a real sort of, um, risk aversion, like, like what is happening when I, you know, maybe I had a bad day at work or there's something scary happening in the economy. And my immediate thought is like, oh my God, I'm, what if we lose our house? Where would we live? You know, catastrophic thinking, you know, like what is, what's going on with that part of my personality? And, and, um, and I think that there's a lot of like conversations that are important to have that I didn't know how to have around what was I taught about interdependence and how to ask for help when I was growing up? Like what were the cultural values around money that I, that I learned both from my family and also sort of like, you know, America at large. And, and I think a lot of the the feelings I have about um, if, if I need financial help, then I am uh, a failure, you know, that as opposed to, you know, there are plenty of other cultures who think like, why do you think this is all on your individual shoulders? Like we help each other as a family and as extended community of networks where we share money and, and prop each other up because we see that there's, um, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. Like I, I needed help sort of figuring out how to think more broadly about like what was going on with all my money hangups. And instead I would just go to like, you know, oh, am I saving the 10 or 15% they say I'm supposed to be doing for retirement? I'm doing that. So am I like, why am I still stressed? (laughs) Well, you know, it seems to me that over the evolution of that chapter, when you start off with it's um, like oxygen and um, in the deepest sense determines our very worth, 
the proposition which I think it underlies capitalism and which I um, don't uh, quibble with. We should quibble with that. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 you write you write toward the end. I think they said the lasting goal of hard money conversations is to identify which parts of our money worries are within our control and which aren't, which are structural forces over which we have no control and which are personal choices. And being able to identify the difference and then make hard money choices based on whether it's structural or personal, whether it's in our control or out of control, I think is a, there's a life lesson in that that, you're, that the chapter talks well to. Yeah. And I mean, that's uh, like part of the other challenge of this chapter was like, how do you talk, write a chapter about talking about money without just eventually saying like, and this is what underpins our entire political debate in America is like, you know, it, because once you say, oh, like there's ways in which this is systemic and structural and not all the result of people's good choices and, and, or lack of good choices, like, then you have to grapple with big political questions. And, um, and so that's why I also wanted to include someone who was quite wealthy uh, in, in the chapter, just to show, I have the personal view that if you have a lot of money, that um, you ought to ad- figure out ways to admit that. And because it, 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 I think that this sort of pervasive, you know, social quiet around wealth um, just allows a lot of um, um, it, it, it allows a lot to be invisible that ought to be visible about how our society is working yeah. and not working for others. Right. But, but I think you also point out, I mean, that which the, the Beatles sang, which is money can't buy you love. And yeah. fun is the one thing that money can't buy that, that, that is, again, it's understanding how disabling Money and the worries about it can can be, um, and and speaking frankly to that is 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 important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, especially you know when you don't have enough, and it feels like you're the only one who's struggling and doesn't have enough. Um, figuring out how to have conversations to maybe ask for help from someone in your life. Or ask for help. There's a, a a college student who I interviewed for the book who went to her, um, you know, student assistance center and just said like, I'm afraid I'm going to lose. You know, I have I'm going to have to quit quit this semester and not finish because I'm not sure we can keep our housing. You know, and and fig- figuring out how to um, have that, how to raise your hand. And the enormous bravery it takes because of how scary it can feel um, is something I also wanted to write about. Yeah. So in, in, our, in our last uh, five minutes, we can say um, tune in for part two or buy the book and we can <laughs> talk about sex. Um, but I'd like you to um, get, give a, a tease about it because what I thought was interesting about sex um the sex chapter was, yeah. <laughs> we can't talk anna yet about what's interesting about sex if you knew in the relationship um you, you talk about it in categories uh, extramarital affairs breaking up in, in divorce which is you know was 
partly um, your lived experience, and then in the context of long-term relationships. Um, so give the listening audience another great reason to buy the book because there's there's a lot in in this. You you write you write that um, in, in sex you're not talking about the 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 physical act alone, but quote and this is a wonderful sentence. You write quote the whole naughty mess that comes with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, when well, so you talk about this whole naughty mess that comes with it in this chapter. Well, the thing that I think um, what I wanted to sort of like include here was, you know, the reason conversations about sex are so hard is because you're trying to figure out like, what do I want and what do I need? And then you have to figure out how to have a conversation with somebody else about what, what they, excuse me, what they want and need. And you're trying to figure out if those two things match up and that's what a sexual relationship is, or that's when you realize, you you know, you don't want to hook up with this person or you don't want to date this person anymore if they, if they don't match up. So there's always underpinning that uh, question of the conversation is, is the risk of rejection or having to reject. Um, And even when you're in the context of a long-term committed monogamous relationship, you know, that kind of push and pull of like rejection or having to reject, like that's there too, you know, because um, what we want from each other and with each other physically will change and changes in long-term relationships, whether because, you know, our bodies change or with age or with illness um, and I wanted to just lift up some of that because that's, that's normal. You know, that's what happens when you live in a body and when you're living in a body next to somebody else with a body, you have to check in every so often and say, you know, what's, what's new for you? Has this changed what you want? You know, because sometimes it does change and then you've got to talk about that. Um, so, so that's just part of the naughty mess that I tried to get into, <laughs> But I, I, it's, it's, it's critical. It's not just like, you know, this is us talking about how to love and be loved. You know, it's, it's the physical act of intimacy, but it's also what, what does my partner need from me? And and am I I giving that? And what do I need? And how has that changed? And, you know, it's, it's critical. It's critical to do that together. Yeah. And and you, you, you write, I mean, it was in the context of, um, the sex chapter, but in, in divorce, you have to always ask yourself, um, do we want to be, do we want more to be together than we want to be apart? And, and you're asking always the question, is it still working for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm not, I certainly, as someone who is married right now, like I, I really believe in, uh, for me, having made that commitment, um, to my husband, Arthur, like I'm in it. And, and if there's moments where it feels like we are, are out of sync, it's figuring out like, oh, okay, well, tell me about that. And, and to be curious about it with each other and not immediately go to the place of like, ah, we're doomed. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, you know, I, I think that was part of what falling in love with Arthur was, was realizing, oh, this is someone with whom I can problem solve and figure this out with. Um, and, uh, but yes, like. Uh, it's, that is what, um, 
that is what we are we a responsibility of 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 our sexual lives and our romantic lives is to just check in and make sure we're loving each other in the way that we we want and need yeah i'm going to ask you one i'm going to read you one final thing and then it's your thesis and 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 you can take us out of the interview with it. Um, and I'm sorry for doing all this reading to you. Oh, that's, you. that's nice. I um, like, I like your close read. Thank you. But I read this book. It, it's, it's an audio, it's an audio cast, but if you saw my book, it's, it was like I'm going to be tested on, um, cause it was testing, it was testing me, uh, throughout. You're right. Um, in conclusion, no matter how much effort you put into these conversations, they will often end without resolution or a fix to the unsettled feelings that prompted them. But let, rem- let me remind you, you are not starting a hard conversation to immediately resolve the intractable. Hard conversations offer you solace and pull you out of isolation. They let you voice truths you'd only half known and listen to stories that you'd otherwise miss. They deepen connections and understandings, but they don't fix hard things. Yeah. I mean, we all know that in different ways. I mean, certainly now, like all of us are coming out of a period of confronting loss and change and questions about the future. And um, unfortunately, none of us is prepared to love someone by saying like, I'm going to take this pain away from you, or I'm going to replace this loss, or I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. None of us can do that for one another. But what we can do is be alongside the people in our lives as we're each figuring it out. Um, and, and that's, that's what I really wanted to call people to do with this book. Yeah. And it's a great book. Let's Thank talk you. about hard things by Anna sale and Anna, we look forward to listening to your WNYC podcast on um, called death, sex, and money. Um, and it's, deathsexandmoney.org and in it there are lots of stories to listen to and in the book there are a host of stories to read and really hard thoughts to think about no less to articulate Hmm. thank you for having me michael it's a real pleasure to talk with you thank you anna that said is produced by compro and the museum of public relations Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.